Hello friends, welcome to Running and Fitness with Raj. This show will bring you exciting and interesting guests and give you specific and actionable advice on your running, fitness and general health. In today's episode, I'm absolutely delighted to have Dr. Stephen Seiler from Norway joining us. I've been a big fan of his work. I have myself benefited a lot. Uh, some of the listeners may remember that a few days back we had interviewed uh, Matt Fitzgerald, uh, whose entire 80-20 book and concepts have been based on Dr. Seiler's uh, research. In fact, it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that uh, his research has contribute, uh, contributed to revolutionizing the way training is approached, the way training is looked at uh, in multiple endurance sport. So I'm absolutely de- delighted to have Dr. Seiler and welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much. It's exciting to be able to speak to this, the audience that you uh, you work with. Thank you. So uh, can we start with uh, just letting the listeners know a little bit of your background? Uh, how did you get, in, get interested in exercise physiology? Uh, what made you move from US to Norway, where you have been based for the last uh, 20 odd years working with the, you know, a variety of athletes, the Norwegian Olympic Federation for a, a relatively long period of time? So over to you, Dr. Seiler. Well, I'm not actually from Norway. I'm from I'm an American citizen. I'm from the United States. And I loved two things as a boy. I loved science. I, I had a laboratory under the stairs in my house. My parents let me <laughs> convert the closet under the stairs into a small laboratory that I could sit and play in and and then I love sports and, and I loved watching sports. I love participating in sports. And I, and I, you know, quickly discovered that I wasn't the most talented. So I wanted to learn how to train, uh, how to get stronger because I was a skinny kid. Um, so, so what sports did you play, play when you were young? I played American football. I did track and field. Uh, those were the two main sports I did in school, my schoolboy days. And then I went to college and decided, or even in high school, I realized uh, that I wanted to somehow connect these two interests of science and sports. And I really didn't know you could do that because they seemed to be just totally separate. But then I started reading and discovering that, yes, there is a connection. There is something called sports science or exercise science. It was an emerging field in the late 70s when I was a young teenager in early 80s. Um, And then I read a chapter in a book, uh, The Complete Runner by Jim Fix, uh, who was a a quite famous uh, author in the United States that helped promote the running kind of explosion in the 70s and 80s, the distance running popularity. And, And he had a chapter about a sports scientist named David Costell. And so at any rate, when I read that as a 16-year-old boy, I just realized what I wanted to be. And so then I began the pathway towards studying uh, sport exercise science, which is a lot of physiology, some psychology, some uh, biology, and then, of course, the specifics of training and and putting all that together and and doing then a bachelor's and a master's and a PhD. So my pathway started you know, way back in the closet and, 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 and on the, on the field. And then, so I, I feel very lucky. I've been able to combine two things I've loved since I was a boy and I still get to be a boy now playing with those same two things. Uh, and then I moved to Norway because I met a, a woman 
who was at a sports science conference. So pretty much my entire life has been uh, influenced by these interests that I started probably when I was 10 years old. Excellent. Okay. Uh, so, you know, you, I know you have a lot of diverse research uh, interest areas. Uh, let's start with uh, something which is uh, well known around the world, your, your eight-level hierarchy of endurance uh, training. How did you research for that first and uh, how did you go about establishing that uh, eight-level uh, pyramid, training hierarchy pyramid? Well, I tell you, this is an interesting story. Sometimes things don't happen. They, sometimes ha- things are not planned. And and I a few years ago, it's probably four years ago now. I was sitting in the on a Sunday in my office at my university, and I was actually in a university leadership role. But my hobby was still sports science, and I was starting to get connected to the social media and and pay attention a bit to Twitter and things. And what I was seeing was just the fact that what you read and hear about the most in social media is not necessarily what matters the most when the basic processes of talent development, of getting better at something, whether you're a runner or playing the violin, it's not very high tech or fancy. It's just about doing the work. And so I got frustrated and then I started saying, well, you know, I remember Maslow, you know, from my school days, my university days of studying basic sociology and psychology and so forth. So I remembered, I said, you know, Maslow had this hierarchy and Maslow basically understood that these higher order needs can only be met when you have done the lower order needs. You know, you have to have food and water before you can think about social interactions and so forth. So, so, so I chose the Maslow type hierarchy and said, let's focus on what matters. And I had been doing research for 30 years and, and studying this. So, and I knew people in the field who had done these different areas like uh, tapering, the, you know, pacing research, uh, the tapering, you know, towards peak performance, altitude training, so many components of that hierarchy, I, I knew basically the, the research and I knew how much the effect of those different perturbations or interventions were. And so then I just basically in one afternoon constructed that hierarchy. I made one picture, a slide, and I posted it on Twitter. And that was it. That was just like, this is my, you know, but it became so popular. At, at any rate, that's how it all began. If I go back to that, I, I still feel comfortable with what I dis, what that whole hierarchy. I feel comfortable with it, and and basically, no one has disagreed with it. The only the only thing that some would say is that what's missing there in the hierarchy is strength training. Okay. Because and and I made a conscious decision not to put strength training in that hierarchy because the use of strength training varies so much. It's not a consistent ingredient in the success of endurance athletes. Some endurance athletes use it a lot. Some do not touch a weight their whole career. And some sports use it more than others. So so my feeling was, okay, I'm not going to put strength training in the hierarchy, not because it doesn't matter, but because it's not consistent enough 
and we treat it separately. From uh, somebody, you know, who's obviously not an elite uh, like myself, the advantage or what that one slide of yours, which really took a life of its own after you tweeted it, uh, is the fact that uh, you talk about the most basic thing and that is the bottom of the pyramid, which is the most important. And then you layer it with another seven layers, but you tell us very clearly that, look, probably the first three layers are the most important. Mm. And unless you do each of those layers, well, there is no point in talking of tapering. And I still remember in one of your talks, you using the phrase, if you are trying to peak without adequate training, what exactly are you trying to peak from? Because you have no base to peak from, right? So so can we uh, get to that three most important elements in the in the order in which you envisaged it, starting with uh, train, uh, training volume. Yeah, so I, I think this is a general truth. Again, if we go back to if you want to learn to play the piano and be good or the violin or do science or whatever, the thing you do most often is that's what you get good at. Generally, doing something regularly is is a very important part of the adaptation process. Uh, and that's just true across the board. And in endurance sports, what emerges is, is that the, the best performers train very frequently. The research is very consistent to show that one of the best ways to get better is just to add volume, to do more. And the, training more can be in the form of training more frequently but it also in part is training longer each time you train. Uh, so both of these tend to happen with the development of, of high performance athletes. And we have a pretty good idea of how much they train. But we also know that just regular people, age group athletes, people, you know, even weekend warriors, training a bit more generally helps. And, and it doesn't have to be a lot of high intensity. You just need to get out there and start running, jogging. Uh, whatever, and and you get better. Your 10K will get better. Your marathon eventually can be better. And and if you're going to run a marathon, you definitely need to have some volume or else it won't be a good experience. And and this is across sports, right? I mean, there is no particular bias towards any endurance sport. No, it's it's very that that basic pattern we've seen. We, I, I've done research with cyclists, rowers, runners, cross country skiers triathletes. So it's very consistent uh, that the volume component, you just can't really sneak around that and say, well, I'm just going to, I'm only going to be trained three or four times a week and I'm going to be world-class. We just don't see that. It doesn't happen. Okay. So that, so that's layer one. That's the first level. And then the next layer is that, yes, sometimes you need to train hard. If you want to be a good runner, a good a swimmer, a good skier, often your performance will ultimately require you to go at a high percentage of your maximum capacity. And doing things like interval training do help the athlete to get better. But you can't just do interval training. And and the interval training works better when it's done on a platform of basic endurance, basic volume. So that's why it's number two in the hierarchy. And then the third part of the hierarchy is essentially saying, okay, what is the balance between those two? Between just getting out there, doing the work, 
regular, relatively comfortable intensity, but going longer versus those days where we say, ah, today I'm going to run intervals. You know, this, this idea I'm going to like on the track, I'm going to run, uh, two, you know, two times around the 400 meter track hard. And then I'm going to rest for two minutes and then I'm going to do that again and rest. That would be an interval session. Well, how often can I do that? How often should I do that? And what should I be doing on the days when I don't do this very high intensity? Well, that is this idea of training intensity distribution that I have worked on for a lot of years. And that's kind of the third part of the pyramid is that, first of all, you know, you need volume, you need frequency, you need some intensity, and then you need to get that balance right. And, and what we've seen is, is if you do those things well, that solves a lot of problems. It helps to ensure that the training process will be sustainable. And when you do things that are sustainable, that you can enjoy over time, you get better. So for an everyday athlete, uh, if they focus on these three things, uh, if I understood you correctly, you are saying that they can see A, a lot of improvement, B, they are quite likely to stay injury-free and health and fit. Is, is that a good summary? That's a, be- a good summary. I mean, we can never be certain that we're going to be injury-free because things happen, but a lot of injuries happen because we go either too hard or we increase the training too quickly. Got it. Okay. And the body doesn't have time to adapt. Understood. Okay. Uh, and can you also just quickly take us through the remaining uh, five components, which I, which is obviously not unimportant, but unless you get the first three components uh, right, you know what you repeatedly say is that it's very you know much less relevant. Right. Well, and these other things are, are clearly useful, or some of them are clearly useful, but the ne- the middle part is what's unclear. Uh, the next step up is the idea that's called periodization. In in the sports world, that, that term has become kind of taken a life of its own, but basically it means planning. If you have a goal that's one year away or six months away, then it's important to think about what's the process. I'm going to run a marathon in one year and I've never run before. Well, it would be useful to have a plan to get from where you are now to where you want to be. And, and there's no dispute about the importance of a training plan. But the problem is that often, at least in the sports science coaching world, we tend to think that we can plan in detail, that we can predict way in advance what's going to happen, and we can create this, this structure and then just push the button and the plan takes care of itself. And that is not true. Yeah, it seldom happens, I guess. Yeah, it's like the weather. You know, despite the most powerful supercomputers in the world, we've never gotten to the point where we can predict the local weather more than about 10 days in advance. 10 days. That's the best we can do with all of the technology in the world. Why? Well, because... The weather is complicated. It's complex. There's a lot of variables and small changes can result in big downstream effects. Well, the same is true in training. 
you know, we get a small injury, we get sick, we get stressed from work, lots of things play in. And so my point with that fourth level was, yes, periodization or planning matters, but highly structured plans that you think are just that will not need to be ad adjusted. That's dangerous because it almost never works that way. And sure. and a lot of the idea of periodization is is taken care of if you get the balance in your training right the volume and intensity, the, you know, the low intensity and the high intensity, if you get that balance right from day to day over weeks and months, then that takes care of a lot of the so-called periodization that you need. Because actually, most of what periodization actually is, is variation, variation in training intensity. And, and, and that's important because the body needs variation or else it's very easy to get into a kind of a uh, you know, I've called it black hole, a kind of a stagnation. Understood. So that's level four. Now, level five is a little tricky in that, or, you know, in, in understanding, but it's, it's about that, we, you might call it micro periodization of saying, should I do two or three hard workouts in a row and then two or three easy workouts in a row? Should I go one hard and then two easy and one hard should if I'm an elite athlete, should I train twice a day or once longer? You know, there's these are little these are issues about the details of how you create the stimuli and how you how much time between each stimuli and so forth. That may matter if you've got all the other things right. But for most of us, that's not where our big results Games are going to come. Right. And then, then you get up to that very top level where you're saying, look, I've done all of these things right. I train well. I train consistently. Uh, I'm staying healthy. Da, 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 da. Now I want to deal with some of the details. For example, I'm going to be racing on a hot day. As, as you well know, in India, or maybe you don't because you're so used to the heat, the heat changes our physiology and it puts pressure on our system to get rid of heat through sweat and so forth. So for athletes that train in a cool environment like Norway uh, and they are very good in, the, in that environment and then they go to a hot place to race, they may do terribly because they're not adapted to the heat. So in that case, it's very it would be critical that they had they spent time doing some heat adaptation training because just training in the heat improves your sweat rate. It improves your tolerance. You lose less salt, many different adaptations that are going to help. For example, uh, if you were running a marathon in 35 or 30 degrees C versus running a marathon at 10 degrees C, you'll definitely struggle more at 30 degrees C. You're not going to set a record at 30 degrees C but you can handle it better if you've done that specific adaptation. So that would be an example of that level, that, that sixth level. Uh, heat adaptation, maybe altitude training would be another example that you could use altitude training to either improve your red blood cell count or because you're going to compete at altitude and you need to be ready for that. Then there is the issue of so-called tapering. Uh, in the research, we call it tapering, uh, peaking your form. 
because you when you're training a lot obviously you, you you're often a little bit tired just because you're training daily you're getting more fit but that fitness is also connected you have some fatigue you know in the daily process and we accept that that you know, we wake up in the morning, we're a little bit tired because we had a long run yesterday and today we're going to do an interval session. So there's a bit of fatigue. Well, if I'm preparing for a race, like my daughter is in, in about uh, four or five days now, she'll be racing in Oslo in a 5,000 meter. Well, she's now in what we call the taper phase. She is has done all the hard work, but mostly now she is just resting. She's letting her body kind of build up its energy reserves. The training is done. She'll, she's still running, but she's reducing the intensity a bit, reducing the volume and moving towards what we hope will be a peak where on the day she'll hopefully run faster than she's ever run before. 97, 8% of that work has already been done. But if she gets it right with that resting phase and, and everything tunes in, then that can make a difference. The, the final difference of some in a 5,000 meter, which maybe, you know, maybe it can make 15, 20 seconds difference for her. Yeah, which may very well be the difference between your best performance and the second best performance. Right? That's right. So, so yeah, we're interested in getting that right, but it would only be useful because she's done all the other work before. Understood. Okay. Okay. And then the final, the very top of that pyramid is something we call pacing, is knowing how to distribute your energy during the race to get the most out of your body. And so, again, if I use my daughter as an example, as part of the training, some of the last high-intensity sessions she's done, we've done at race pace. So I want her to be comfortable, and she wants to be comfortably and mentally prepared for what is race pace for 5,000 meters for her? What does it feel like? How should it feel at the beginning? How should it feel in the middle? And what can we expect it's going to feel like at the end? So she's mentally prepared, and hopefully that will help her to choose the right pace in the race. Okay, so that's this issue of pacing is training the very specific uh, intensity or pace you're going to use in your marathon, in your 5K run, in your cycling race, whatever it might be. Okay, uh, one thing you said is probably you deliberately excluded uh, strength training. Uh, did you, uh, you know, and obviously in endurance performance, uh, mental training or how strong your mind is, is very important. Is it something uh, you had considered including in the hierarchy? Well, I think mental, tra mental training is happening all the time. The, okay. the brain is never separate from the body. So, uh, and, and this is important. Athletes are constantly training the mental component. Now, the mental component has different aspects it, the, the actual technical aspect even on a long run slow with slow relatively low intensity you may be training certain technical elements you may be trying to relax and and, and focus on certain internal information from your body so there's always mental training happening okay, okay. that's why i don't separate it out okay i understand now the the other you asked is strength training 
clearly strength training can have an impact. In general, you know, endurance sport is not about maximum force production. It's about a very low submaximal force production produced many, many, many times in a marathon, thousands of times in a 2000 meter rowing race, maybe 250 times. Uh, whereas strength training, you want to know how strong you are to do something six times or eight times or 10 times. So it's a very different position on the duration curve, you might say, the force duration curve. But what we do see, there is quite a bit of research that in certain sports, for example, in running some core stability training, some plyometric or, or jump training can help improve leg stiffness, which can improve efficiency or economy. There will be differences from athlete to athlete. We have examples of world record holder runners who have never trained with weights their entire career. Okay. And we have examples of athletes that say, yes, strength training is very important for me. So that's why strength training was not, I didn't put it in that hierarchy because the, the needs and the uses are not as consistent as we see with the other dimensions of that hierarchy. Yeah. Uh, so coming to the other uh, thing that you are you are popularized around the world, which is the polarized training or essentially doing most of your training at very low intensity. And it kind of ties in with the hierarchy also because those are, you know, within the first, first three levels, like train consistently, uh, have some intensity and get the distribution right, as you said. How did you get curious about this? And uh, what, uh, I mean, what research did you do in terms of getting to that uh, conclusion of 80-20 or polarized training? I mean, it, many terms are used these days. Right. right. Well, again, I when I was trained in the United States, I've said this before, the, the a lot of the research that was being done on endurance training in the 70s and 80s, I would say, it was typically performed using uh, physical, physical education students. They would be told that, you know, it was part of their part of their course at the university was to be part of this study or they, or they were volunteers. So you would take relatively, they would be fit, active, but not, not particularly well-trained. And they would be asked to do some training program for, say, eight weeks, because that's about how much time you have during the semester of the university calendar. And then they would be tested before and after. Well, this often resulted in a lot of studies where people did, you might call threshold training. They trained at about 75, 80 percent of their maximum heart rate. They had fairly low fitness, so that was enough that that would put them in their threshold. And they did that three times a week, and they got better. And, and it works. It works. If you're relatively untrained and you go out three times a week for 45 minutes at your lactate threshold, then you'll get better. Your, your, your VO2 max will improve. Your speed at your lactate threshold will improve. The problem is, is that it, it flattens out pretty quickly. In other words, the effect of that type of training doesn't just keep going up, up, up after about eight or 10 weeks, you've kind of, you've kind of done that. And now it, to get more out of your body, you have to do something different. 
but that we weren't seeing that because those studies weren't being done. So when I moved to Norway, uh, I kind of had that threshold model in my brain, but then I started seeing examples of very good athletes and how they were actually training. And what I was seeing was, well, they're not doing what I thought was the best practice model, which is a lot of threshold training. They're doing, sometimes they're training seemingly pretty easy. They're talking and they're, you know, running in the forest for two hours and they don't seem to be struggling very much. But then other days they're training really hard. And so then I got curious and started trying to say, well, I need to measure this. I need to quantify what the athletes are actually doing. And so we did a number of studies from different kinds of athletes, rowers, cyclists, runners. And again, this pattern emerged where, uh, you know, it gets a little detailed about how you measure these things. But basically, most days, about 80% of the days, eight out of 10, were generally, uh, we might call them extensive days. They were doing long, low intensity work. And then about two out of 10 days on average, were high high intensity or intensive days. So if you think of intensifying versus extending your endurance, they were f- mostly extending, but occasionally they were intensifying. Two days, you know, not occasionally, but regularly, but not every day, only about two, sometimes three days in a, uh, out of 10. So this pattern emerged and eventually I kind of had the courage to say, okay, I need to, <laughs> I need to say something about this. I need to write about it and I need to give it a name. And so that's when it, this polarized training model emerged. And I, I believe I used that term the first times we're in papers in 2004 and 2006. So it's about 15 years ago now. Okay. And in terms of measuring this intensity, uh, you just touched upon it, uh, is there any favorite measure for you, which is, is it uh, power or percentage of maximum heart rate or, right. uh, or is it good enough that uh, the rate of perceived exertion uh, is, is good enough? What is your favorite? Do you have a favorite measure? You mentioned basically the three basic methods that we have just now. Uh, so you you know the you know the way this works. We have three ways. One is we can measure the actual external work that we do, the pace in running, the power on a bicycle. Uh, so so that's the external workload, and that method is available to us. If you're a runner uh, and you're on flat terrain on a track where where your speed is can be consistent, then pace can be a useful measure of your intensity. But that's your external work. It only tells us what you're doing, but it doesn't tell you what it costs your body, right? So you also mentioned heart rate. Well, heart rate is kind of a window into the physiology of the body, the body's uh, mobilization of its capacity. And as heart rate increases, it means that we are you in general, we're using more oxygen. We are more muscle is being uh, recruited or mobilized by the brain. So heart rate is a, in a way a it's like the accelerometer, the 
the the speedometer in your car it's telling you how hard the engine is working or it's the rpm for the motor so so that's a useful measure and then the third that you mentioned is fundamentally important and that is just perception because on the top of that body that you're using all those muscles whether you're running or rowing or cycling uh, or, or playing basketball is your, your brain and your brain is, is controlling, hopefully <laughs> the process and making decisions. It is perceiving the effort. It's perceiving the cost because obviously all the things you feel when you feel that your legs are getting, uh, stiff and you, you know, you're struggling. Well, that, that feeling is actually, it only exists up in your brain. That's one of the fascinating aspects of, of the human body is that all of those feelings of pain and effort and so forth, they are constructions up in our brain, but they are constructions based on data from the brain or from the body combined with information from the brain. So all three of those methods are useful tools for, for managing day-to-day training. And I, I tend to think of them as a, uh, a triangle or a trinity. They all three go together. Uh, so now in polarized training, you know, the inter- high intensity sessions are uh, few and far between, like say two days out of 10 or uh, 20% of the time. How should an everyday athlete uh, look at structuring it? I mean, do they benefit more from doing slightly longer intervals, but shorter number, for example, a- am I better off running 10 two-minute intervals, or am I better off running, let's say, five five-minute intervals with adequate rest in between? Is, right. there, is there, from a research perspective, have you found a difference? Well, we, we've done some research on that, and we've also looked at how the best train. And, and if you imagine, if we go back to heart rate, and, uh, you know, I often use three zones physiologically. I've, I've often used green, yellow, red. But even if, if you go to a little bit more of a detailed idea about those zones and, and go to five zones and you say that you have, you might call it light green, dark green, yellow, orange, and red, meaning that you're above your threshold, it's, it's hard, but you're at maybe 90% of heart rate max versus 94 or five that would be red. Orange is more like 90. Well, what we see is that doing intervals that are a bit longer, maybe eight minutes instead of three or four minutes, but collecting more minutes at at say 90%, it works well. It improves your fitness, but it is more sustainable. It's easier to recover from the next day. Okay. Okay. Understood. So that's uh, that's quite uh, that's quite helpful. Uh, the uh, other area which I wanted to talk about is your research interest in the brain-body interactions and the perception of effort. Uh, so, what can you tell us about uh, about that, and what what have you been finding out lately? Well, yeah, we in in some of the studies, particularly one study we did where we had this large number of athletes that did different interval sessions as part of a, a big intervention, we were able to collect a lot of data on 
uh, how they perceive the effort or the exertion during the interval session, during the hard. And, and one of the things you find is, for example, if I tell you, Raj, I want today, I want you to do on the track, I want you to do four times 2000 meters. That would be maybe roughly four times eight minutes for you. So when you do that and you're going to recover two or three minutes between each of these hard runs. Well, as a coach, I know, or as a scientist, I know that Raj, when you do that first 2000 meter, it's going to feel pretty tough, but not too bad. And then the second one, even though you're running at the same speed, is going to feel harder. So if you said that your perceived exertion on the Borg scale from six to 20 was 15 after the first, at the end of the first interval, it'll probably be 16 after the second. And after the third, it'll be 17. And after the fourth, it'll be 18, meaning getting pretty close to max, even though you're at the same speed. And, and so after a while, I, as a coach, if I understand how these interval sessions work and how your brain is going to perceive them, then I can help to make sure that you find that I give you the right prescription and that you understand the right pace to do these at, because it's not a steady, it's not a steady situation. Even when the external load is constant, the internal load is increasing throughout the whole workout. It's getting, it's both perceptually harder, but it's also physiologically harder because your body is fatiguing and your brain is having to recruit more muscle. It's having to mobilize a greater percentage of your capacity to maintain that same pace. Now that's going to be true in that interval workout, but it's also going to be true in that 10 K run you do or a marathon. The same process is going to happen that your brain is going to be calculating all the time whether you can get to the finish line at the speed you're running. And it's going to be making predictions based on how do I feel right now? How rapidly am I feeling worse? (laughs) How is my body? Is my body maintaining? Am I deteriorating? And do I need to adjust my pace accordingly? So that's this, I call it, lots of people, we call it the conversation. The conversation that is happening between your brain says, that says, I want to get a personal record in the marathon. And in order to do that, I have to maintain this pace. And your body, which is saying, well, sorry, you didn't train well enough. You train, you train well enough to run that fast for an hour, an hour and a half, but not for two and a half hours. <laughs> so, so now you have to pay the price. This conversation is always going on in our in our training and in our performance. Okay, so are there some ways to uh, uh, what you call? Are there some ways to tell the brain not to worry about it, uh, or or is is it all dependent on how you trained fundamentally? Uh, well, yeah, that's a great question. Mo- obviously, you can only do so much with your brain. I mean, your your body. <laughs> If you want to run really fast, you've got to be well-trained. There's physiological limitations. But it's certainly the in the heat of the moment, in the conversation, it's useful to have some tools, some mental tools uh, in, your, in your toolbox. One of the tools, for example, would be that 
you you break down the race that may be lasting two hours into smaller pieces, one kilometer at a time, or two kilometers at a time, or a, a few in a, in a very short race. It may be you're going. It, I've been in situations like in rowing where the race is six seven minutes, where I am giving myself a small pat on the back mentally after every twenty strokes at the end of the race, because you're so tired, you, you break things down into smaller pieces and, and say, just get through this next, you know, count to 20, take, you know, two minutes. We're going to run for two minutes. I'm going to relax. I'm going to hold this speed. And when I get to the end of that two minutes, I'm going to have a new goal. This is one of the tools that we use when we're fatigued is just making small goals out of the big, the big goal. Another of course is, is distraction. You know, what we tend to see is that uh, lesser trained athletes tend to use distraction, meaning you, you might be listening to music. You might be trying to think about something else instead of the discomfort you're feeling. So that's a mental tool. What we tend to see, though, is with elite performers, they don't use distraction. They use more focused internal observation. They basically start uh, scanning. They are even more carefully listening to their body. And, you know, the, they're saying with their brains, they're saying, all right, focus on uh, the breathing right now, or focus on your cadence right now. So they're, they're taking different parts of the information coming back to their brain and tuning into those and trying to mac, uh, you know, maximally be maximally efficient, and then disconnect from that pain perception because they, you know, they'll tell themselves, "Look, I know that pain is just up in my brain." Uh, so before we let you go, Doctor Seiler, uh, you know, I do a fun segment of a short quiz with my guests, just uh, five questions on things like uh, training and. Uh, food and what have you so can we just run through the questions if you are all right yeah I'm, I'm scared this could be reveal things i just have no idea about let's go before we start the quiz i want to let listeners know that all the resources being discussed here are included in the show notes so do refer to those uh, links for further information i also request all of you who are listening to please subscribe to the podcast and spread the word please also leave a review on itunes as it will help enormously to grow the show now to the quiz. So here we go. Do, do, do you remember what was the which one was the first vegetable to be grown in space? Uh, the first vegetable was a potato. Yeah, it is a potato, uh, which NASA did in nineteen ninety five. Okay, now we all know that the Tokyo Olympics has been postponed. Uh, five new sports were uh, added uh, in the in the Tokyo Olympics. Uh, can you name a few? Oh. Well, I know they're they're kind of they would tend to be high sensation seeking events. Skateboard, maybe. Skateboard is one. Yes. Think water. Surfing. Yeah, surfing. Yeah, surfing was added. That's right. Uh, they uh, they are having karate as uh, one event. Yeah. Uh, then uh, there is something called sport climbing. Yeah. In fact, baseball is making a comeback, and then they have also added uh, softball. There is a. a Leave of a, leaves of a commonly used herb, which is uh, poisonous. Uh, do you know which herb is this? The leaves. We use the 
the root, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, if I recall, it's rhubarb. Yeah, yeah, it is rhubarb. Yeah. A uh, couple of more questions. A company called Stride, S T R Y D, has popularized uh, gear up uh, in uh, running. What is the uh, gear used for? Yeah, the, the Stride company has developed a little pod device that measures the uh, accelerations of the foot and is calculating power. Absolutely. Yeah. Running. Okay. And the last one is uh, again on food pears, ap- apricots, plums, cherries, peaches. They all belong to the same family. Uh, do you know which family? <laughs> so, what is the official name? <laughs> no, it's not the official name. Actually, they all belong apparently to the rose family. Uh, what are your recommendations for some of the resources uh, that? Uh, the listeners can use. We will separately, you know, uh, list your resources, links to your website and ResearchGate and things like that. Uh, but do you use some other parties' blogs, website, or any books, magazines that you can recommend? But I, I guess I would say to listeners, if you're interested in trying to understand the research, one of the options you have is ResearchGate this you know database it's kind of like uh, a facebook for scientists and what's the best way to contact you well i think perhaps from the general public i would say through twitter Uh, you can find me on twitter it's just my name uh, at steven seiler that i have a twitter account and i'm pretty active on twitter and i have about twelve thousand followers and uh and mostly they are scientists and coaches and athletes. Thanks a lot, Dr. Seiler. Really, really appreciate this was enormously helpful. Thank you for all the good work you are doing for um, obviously elite athletes and others, but as well as for the everyday person. Thank you so much. Excellent. Well, good luck. Good luck with and good luck to your listeners. Thank you very much to all the listeners. As I mentioned, all the resources discussed here are included in the show notes. So do refer to those links for further information. You can reach out to me on my social media handles, which are running and fitness with Raj on both Instagram and Facebook. And you can also email me on running and fitness with Raj at gmail.com. Please let me know if you have any questions or specific guests you would like to see on the show. I also request you all again to please subscribe to the podcast and spread the word. Please also leave a review on iTunes as it will help enormously to grow the show. We will continue to bring you exciting and interesting guests and give specific and actionable advice. Stay safe, stay healthy. Until the next show, goodbye.